Um, you may notice immediately there's no cute video to introduce the pastor today. That should be, that's a red flag, just so you can learn the pastor's habits. If there is no cute video to introduce the pastor or a wonderful song sung by one of you, that means the pastor's worried he's going to do this too much. Okay, so those of you listening later, I'm waving my hands, visualizing talking too much. This is one of those subjects. Just so you have a clue, based on conversations with many of you, looking at the lectionary suggested choices that are across all denominations for the next six or seven weeks, decide to take worship with the exception of the high and holy holiday of Football Sunday to, for the next several weeks, to discuss what it means to be a Baptist. Um, as we discussed, as I discussed with some people this morning, I discussed with people Saturday, discussed with people Friday, discussed with people Thursday, not on Wednesday, on Tuesday, we have done a really good job this church and churches in this area have done a really, really good job of saying, we believe this and this is what it looks like. Good. But you didn't explain to us why we believe that. Now, you came to really, really good conclusions. We should love our neighbor. We should, we should give to the poor. We'd, all these things. They're great. And you had you know, wonderful discussions of ideas we have of baptism and how it's done and putting that in nice, pretty Baptist terms, the concept was discussed there is we call it soul freedom, which sounds really cool, which we'll discuss in a couple weeks. It's the idea that no one can make you be a Christian. There should be a disclaimer. You're on your own to decide what you want to do with your faith. That's a Baptist distinctive. That became important in all of Christianity because of some Baptists. Be here next week. We get to talk about them. Having said that, you can't talk about what it means to be Baptist if you don't talk about baptism. It's kind of in the name. Now, fair warning. I do feel a lot of significant pressure as a leader, but it's what you sign up for. That for many of you, much of what you learn and experience spiritually in a normal week are those words that come out of my mouth. Which is probably not enough, but it's the main thing that comes out of your mouth. Baptists made this a distinctive and an important distinction in how important baptism was done over 400 years ago. Now, before you panic and think Baptists always did it the same way, when Baptists started in the Netherlands, they poured water on them. When Baptists started in England, they sprinkled water on them. And when Baptists started in the United States, they poured water on them. So if you think we've always done baptism the same way, eh, wrong answer. Um, However, when the writers of the New Testament used the word that means baptism, they all knew what they meant. We don't. And let me tell you, I didn't learn what it really meant until three years into seminary. So that is all I can say. Last disclaimer before we get into this as I use the word disclaimer again. I've taught Baptist history one of the things you start with is why we do baptism, why we do it. I've taught Baptist history with a translator. I'm not going to try to bore you to death like those poor students had to listen to for three hours, okay? We're going to try to do this quickly. Having said that, today is Baptism Lord Sunday. You look on the church calendar, this is the day we celebrate Jesus' baptism. If we use the traditional passages next year, Mark is going to tell us, big surprise, hey, Jesus was baptized by John. You know what the traditional passage will be two years from today? Luke's going to tell us, Hey, Jesus was baptized by John. 
Before I attempt to explain baptism, because many of us come to some, lots of issues with baptism, I want to tell you a once-upon-a-time story. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, where they worship the Dallas Cowboys, there was this young preacher who knew everything and everything was, who you know, went to an assignment to go work in South Oak Cliff in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is the largest minority poverty, poverty-ridden area in Dallas-Fort Worth area. The people who were there called themselves street people. I really am offended by that term, but that's the term that they used. They called themselves street people. And on a Thursday night at one of the prominent churches that was in that area, they would have a worship service where they would come and they would worship, and then they would feed them afterwards. It would be like a big partition right here, and all the food would be hanging here. And if you were standing here talking, you could smell the food, which was very distracting. Um, No one's really listening, and no one's really singing because they're just there to have some food. And do you blame them? No. On that one particular Thursday night, they set up a bunch of Bibles in the back of the back of the room because apparently churches accumulate Bibles. There are, you know, if you leave your coat at church, you come back. If you leave your purse at church, you come back. If you leave your Bible at church, you're like, never mind. I'll just go get another one. I don't know why. It's just the way it is. Okay, it's true. There was a bunch of things. Everyone was told to take a Bible out of there with the idea that they would take them and they'd be theirs. One individual named William walked back, and I'm actually going to walk back and scare you because this is how it was for the once upon a time. Walked back, grabbed one of those, and picked it up and said, I don't read no New International Version. Let me describe William to you. William's approximately 240 pounds, a bodybuilding type body. Clearly showed signs if you knew what you were looking for of drug use. And comes storming up to the front to talk to the 20-something, 145-pound Caucasian preacher who knew everything, of course. I don't read no New International. Well, what do you read? I'm a King James man. So they walked back, and they dug through and found a King James Version. I was so glad it wasn't a new King James Version. Okay, King James Version. And handed it to him, and everything seemed to calm down at that point. And then the service went on, and... And the 20-minute sermon, which seemed like it went forever after that, went on, and everything was great. Not picking on William. Do you think he'd read a Bible in the last five years? No. Do you think he'd owned a Bible in the last ten years? No. Somewhere back in his past, he remembered Mama, probably Grandma, based on his culture, saying, we read the King James Version. Did he have a good reason to read the King James Version? No. I can give you some good reasons if you want to. But did he have one? No. But he had an incredibly strong emotional reaction to something that seemed religious. Much of what you believe and much of what I believe is a strong emotional reaction we put in our religious culture that may have nothing to do with reality. Now, I can sit here and unpack to you why we have different translations, where the King James came from, and but wow, that would be even boring for me. But he just had this idea. I tell that story because many of you, as I start to describe this, are going to visualize things that you have thought, things that you have heard, and things that you know, or think you know, about baptism. Let's pick on other people because that's what we do at church. You know of people 
who come to church, you know, maybe every other Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. And maybe they darken a Christmas Eve service and that's the most church they get for several years. But then you know these people, and let's say for sake of my illustration, they're in their mid-20s to late-20s, and they've reached that stage of life, and maybe they've not made the best decisions. And then they meet someone, and then they move in together, adding all the stress of moving in together and all the drama and all the difficult sociological problems that go into that. And then, they, then suddenly, we're not sure how this happens, I'll have to go study. A baby magically happens in this world. I know. Speaking of stress, it's just bad. Yes, these are things that I'll have to go learn. Um, baby comes to this world. So there's lots of stress. And then all of a sudden, they kind of look at each other. We need to get this baby baptized. Do they have a good reason? No. Do they care about God? No. But all of a sudden, there is a strong emotional religious reaction. I need to get this baby baptized. And just in case you're wondering, this is not a sermon on the discussion of whether we should baptize infants or not. I can actually argue for that if you want me to, which would be really scary. Feel free to meet with me for Pastor Talk back afterwards. We can talk about that. Having said that, why did they have this emotional reaction? Why did baptism have so much? Or if you've ever thought that you were worried about somebody's future because they weren't baptized the right way or they weren't baptized by the right person or things weren't... Do you have a good reason? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But much of what you believe is an emotional reaction of embedded ideas in your head that have absolutely nothing to do with what the New Testament writers wrote about. Like I said, I feel much pressure to say the right thing because I need to convey to you what the New Testament writers thought. So why do we call ourselves Baptists? And why do we do this ancient ritual that involves water? Don't we live in the 21st century? Aren't we smarter than that? Shouldn't we come up with some better way to do this? Okay, smart Alec Pastor John responds that you should see this coming already. Hey, I was reading the other day Matthew 28, verse 19. And Jesus said... Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's silly for you. Maybe it seems weird to you. But if someone who can live and die and rise from the dead says to do something, I just try to do it. And he said, baptize people. You should make disciples and baptize them. Another discussion later, we can discuss why making disciples and baptizing happens in that order. But that's just what I do. Now, we can talk about it if you want to stay here for the pastor talk back session afterwards because Claudia is not here, so her class won't be happening. You'll be stuck with me. I'm sorry. Um, you want to ask me all about this? You get a chance to do that. But before that, I get to talk. Sorry, I have the microphone. I need you to use your imagination for a second. I need you to imagine you're a young male living in the first century. Ladies, I know this is going to be really hard. I'm sorry. But it's important for this story that you pretend like you're a young male for a second. You're a young male living in the first century. You have a mom who's Greek and a dad who's Roman. This is important for the story. Don't ask why. You can ask me later. And you have lived with them, and you've been a dutiful son, and you've done all the things, and you've grown up in your culture, and you've gone to right schools, and you've learned about Zeus and Poseidon and Hades and all the Greco-Roman gods. 
And then you get this job offer to go be a merchant and expand your business and to move away from mom and dad, which you've been dying to do. You move away and you move to Jerusalem to start your business where you're a merchant. You only have to work like four days a week. You think it's awesome. You set up your business. Everything's great. You go there and you start to encounter these people you never really encountered before. They call themselves Jews. And you meet these Jewish people. And these Jewish people seem a little odd. And they seem to wear certain things and say certain things. And they talk about believing in just one God. And you're like, one God? What? There's lots of gods. One God, and that seems odd to you. But then you watch them. And they care for their family. And they seem devoted to something that makes their lives better. And at least most of them treat other people with respect. They start saying things like, well, I'm supposed to care for someone the way God cares for me. And, and we serve the Father and I would not want these things to happen. And you start using all these terms and you start listening and you go, huh. And then, you know, you start being given sacred texts by them. They're translated into Aramaic and Greek so that you can read them. And it intrigues you. And after some time, you begin to ask these new Jewish friends, is it possible for someone like me who's not a Jew to become a Jew? I mean, you think my parents would just flip out. But I think this thing you're doing makes sense to me. And you ask the fellow Jewish merchants or the customers you work with, and they say to you, I don't know. I've not really heard of many people like you becoming Jews. But I'll go check. So they go check and they come back and suspiciously they come back on a Sunday after they've met with their religious professionals. They say, I think I have good news. My religious professional, because they wouldn't call them by name, tells me that you can become a Jew. I've set up a meeting with you for tomorrow which you, where you get to meet in the outer court of the temple like on the outskirts of the temple. And they're going to meet with you and sit down with you and explain it to you. You're all excited. You tell your wife and you go to, the, you go to this thing and, and they set you down in some really uncomfortable chairs. If you've ever seen images of the Jewish temple, really uncomfortable chairs. And they say, well, there's five things you have to do. And I only say five, so I'll remember all of them. There's five things you have to do. It's important for you to know that you are a young male for this conversation. If you've been to Sunday school or Bible study, often you should see this joke coming. They calmly say, one thing I just need you to know, and usually this slow stops people, I'm going to need you to be circumcised. Yeah, 20, 30-something male, it doesn't sound like a great idea. So you kind of cringe, and you think to yourself, maybe worshiping Zeus and Poseidon is not so bad. And then you ponder, okay, let's say I can get over that. What are the other things I have to do to becoming from being a Gentile to a Jew? And I want to make sure I get these in order so I'm fair. They say you're going to need to submit to the law of Moses. You're going to need to do the law of Moses. So cute little phrases about you need to do the Ten Commandments. You need to do all these different laws, all these different things. Read through the five, what we know is the first five books of the Bible. You need to know that stuff and do that stuff. You're like, I saw that coming. I'm ready for that one. Seems a little tough, but it works for my Jewish friends. Maybe I can do it. Then third, you, they say, you're going to need to have a big ceremonial meal and invite some people and have some food. They're like, well, I, you like, I like food. Food sounds good. Okay, I'm good with that. 
Then the fourth thing, which all of a sudden I'm blanking and I'm away from my notes. Oh, duh. The fourth thing is you have to have the, the priest take a special offering that you bring that costs you a lot. They burn it. They smell it. See if it smells wonderful, and they, which they will, of course. And they say, poof, poof, you're approved of the fourth step. That really is how it goes. Then there's the fifth step, which you didn't see coming at all, which really does relate to today's discussion. They say, you're going to need to have a big ceremony and this big gigantic cistern full of water. You're going to need to get in in a ceremony and wash yourself. And I quote from the Jewish documents of the first century. You will need to get in the cistern to represent washing away your old ways and your rebirth into Jewish ways. Let me repeat that. They get into a cistern that they wash themselves to represent giving up their old ways to be a part of the new Jewish ways. Okay. It's important for this discussion. We're not done with the young Jewish male. Now, you've decided after listening to all that, after cringing a little bit with number one, you decide to go talk to your family. You go home and the kids are playing, doing stuff that mom doesn't allow them to do, and you're wondering why that's happening. And they say, mom's down at the Jordan River washing clothes. Now you know why they're messing up. So you go to the Jordan River. You go to see your wife, and she's washing clothes in the Jordan River. Because, shocker, they don't have washing machines in the first century. So she's washing her clothes in the Jordan River. You go down to see her. You see her, and she asks, hey, how did it go about becoming Jewish? You go, well, I heard it might be a little easier for you than it's going to be for me, but it went okay. And then all of a sudden you hear this screaming off in the distance. And your wife does that thing that just only wives can do, where they just roll their eyes in that look of, you know, you're not allowed to say much else. And just that rolling your eyes and discontent, and it makes you just wonder. And you show to your wife, during that, they wrote down the five things I was supposed to do. And that this fifth one, they wrote down this word that I thought I knew what it meant. It's the word baptizo. To refer to the fifth step. For those of you here in attendance, you now see the lovely Greek word baptizo. If you transliterate it, which is going to be important if you quiz me during the pastor talk. If you transliterate it, you get either baptizo or baptizo, the D there is probably better. That is the word that's written on your document, that really expensive parchment they gave you that said these are the five things you have to do. Now, we know exactly what that word means. We have documents that were written before the biblical texts were written by a man named Nicander. You may have heard of Nicander. If you haven't, then you don't watch a lot of Food Network shows. And he's from an area which is now to Turkey today. It was written about 200 B.C. And I quote, He wanted to teach people how to make pickles. Yes, those of you who are listening later are laughing. There might be a veggie tale on the screen. Um, let me quote from Nicander's writing, which is, you can Google this quickly. Nican I mean, you can Google this. It'll be the first thing that comes up. So easy to see. It says, The vegetables should be dipped... Bapto, into boiling water. And then the same should be baptized in a vinegar solution. 
In the case of the pickle, there, will be a, there was a double dipping. This is an exact document. You can look it up. It's not hard to find. Okay? I would like to edit some of that to make for a better sermon, but that's what it says. This was written to approximately at least 200 years before the New Testament writers wrote the words they had. The point is, the word we translate baptize in English translation originally has no religious meaning whatsoever. None. It was a common Greek word referring to taking things and sinking them in liquid. The New Testament translators know this because translating the New Testament in English is very, very hard. But just to give you one example of we know that's what this word means and the New Testament translators knew what this word means is John chapter 11, verses 37 through 38. Pharisees are talking to him and say, says, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. The word wash in the original language is the word baptizo. The same word we use for baptism. Wash. Means wash. I cannot emphasize that enough. The word baptism that we know as baptism means wash. In every single English translation, even the latest one, even the nice pretty message translation, they all say wash. This is not in dispute. I just picked one of 12 examples that you can find easily that you're a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia or a concordance would give you the information. Now back to our story, because you're a Jewish male wanting to be Jewish. Got your wife. She's at the Jordan River. She's been complaining about this guy down the river who just screams and yells a lot. And you look down there, and you see this guy who's screaming and yelling a lot. He's got a really long, wild beard, and he's got odd clothes. Looks like he's kind of homeless. And he keeps yelling stuff. Repent! Repent! The kingdom of God is at hand. You listen to this stuff for quite a while. And then you're like, what is he talking about? So you get closer. And then you see that a whole bunch of people are lining up at the shore to go out to meet John, who is standing in the middle of the river. Not to go into superstitions because we don't have time for this. Jewish people didn't get in the river unless there was a boat. That's why the Jonah story is amazing. Because that Jonah, to flee God, they believe in monsters in the river. You know those horrible movies about piranha killing you when you get in the river? That's what they believe was in the river. John's in the middle of it. Talking of act of faith. And he stands there and a whole bunch of people line up and look like when an assembly line, they just kind of line up. And they all line up and they kind of do this washing ceremony. Now, we don't have the exact details of how the washing ceremony was done. We don't know exactly what is said and who puts their arms up and who does this or who does that. But you start to watch and you watch for a while. And it looks like they're doing some kind of religious ceremony or initiation to be in a group. And then you listen to the people in the, 
on the outside, and they start giving this guy named John a nickname. You may have heard of his nickname. He's John the Washer. That's what that meant. He's John the Washer. He washed them. And you start to put the pieces together based on your talk to the, the Jewish religious professionals, and you start to think, oh, they want to be a part of his group. Now, some of you, I can't resist. This is a terrible joke. Just go with me. Some of you may think when you've read the biblical text before that John the Baptist was the first Baptist, and there are Baptists who believe that. God bless them. Um, but he wasn't John the Baptist. It wasn't Fred the Presbyterian. It wasn't Mary the Methodist or Albert the Pagan. It was describing what he did. John washed. You keep washing these baptisms, and you watch them, and all of a sudden, John turns around and points his bony, long finger at you with that look of someone who looks like he's in a horror movie and is coming after you. And he points directly at you and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And you stand there after he points at you thinking, what is he talking about? Did I do something wrong? What's going on? And you just pause. And then while you're trying to decide if you're going to take a step forward, all of a sudden this hand comes on your side and pushes you out of the way. And this nice man walks past you. And you start hearing in the whispers, Jesus. Hey, that's Jesus. Hey, I remember him. That's Jesus. And you're like, who's this Jesus guy? And they just go, well, you know, he's this guy that's been around and he does stuff. And, and then you start to listen to what's going on as Jesus interrupts the line and gets to the front. And they, Jesus and John have this conversation. And you're like, I don't understand what's going on. And some accounts later say that Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So visualize these two people. No, no, you go first. No, no, you go first. No, no, I can't let you do that. No, no, I can't let you do that. That's what's going on here. Well, I need to be baptized by you. No, no, I need to be baptized. No, no, I need to be baptized by you. So there's this entire confusing thing because both of them know what baptism really means. And one, hint, hint, Jesus has got to do this for a reason that you've probably never heard in your entire life, and I'm sorry, we'll get to that at the end. John knows that he's not worthy to baptize Jesus. And he doesn't want to screw this up. Hey, this is Jesus, and by the way, he's family. I don't want to hear about it from mom. The narrative continues on and says, Jesus replied, let it be so now. I kind of visualized thunder at this point, but it didn't happen. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consents, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I, am, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Can you tell that I memorized it in King James originally? Okay. Jesus goes on and on and leaves there. And you see him leave, and some people go with him, and they go down to another section of the Jordan River. And then some of Jesus' followers, new followers, they start baptizing people. We know from historical records that Jesus kind of stood on the shore, kind of like that 
that supervisor you have at work who doesn't really do anything but just make sure you don't screw it up. That's what Jesus is doing. So now we've got John continuing to baptize people on one end of the Jordan River, and then we've got Jesus baptizing in another section, and your poor wife is just washing clothes in between them, okay? We've got all this going on. This goes on for a while. Apparently some followers of John said, you know what? We can make this go worldwide. We could start our own website, some social networking. We can make this whole thing go worldwide. And they travel, and we have historical records of these people traveling possibly as far as France, telling people, the kingdom of God is coming, repent, there is one coming, and you need to be baptized into this. We read about in Acts, chapter 19, about a guy named Paul who encountered Jesus, who was baptized, who meets some of the, at least two of these guys and says, what are you doing? You're preaching about this person that I have met. And as you can see on the screen, it says, in Acts 19, 4 and 5, it says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe the one who's coming after him, that is Jesus. When those two guys who had been traveling the world telling about John's baptism said, oh, that one's come? They were baptized in the name of Jesus. Insert whatever jokes and quiz me later in pastor talk. So you're telling me they got baptized once and they got baptized again? Yeah, they did. Okay, it's important. There's a punchline coming. Stay with me. So what? The point of preaching in telling elaborate, cute stories that make you cringe if you're a male thinking about what it means to become Jewish, is to get to a point of what does this even matter? That was nice, John. I'm glad you explained baptizo to me and you explained washing. What does it matter? If you leave the sermon and you have no idea why this matters, then I did not do my job. So why does any of this matter? Baptism is a public declaration of a new association. Why did Jewish people get people who wanted to become Jewish get baptized in a big cistern? To say to everybody in a public setting, I want to do new stuff. Why did people who were came to see John the Baptist, why were they baptized? Because they wanted to be associated with John and John's message. Why did people on the other end of the Jordan River want to be baptized by the followers of Jesus? Because they wanted to be associated with this Jesus guy. By being baptized, you are washed of your old identity and given a new identity. Not to be gross and off script, so now I'm adding another two minutes to the sermon. In Christian tradition, baptisms are done the night before Easter morning. You, um, you kind of have an all-night lock-in, which lock-ins are satanic, but just go with me. You have an all-night lock-in. And you enter into an area where you are baptized. We're not sure how all the procedures were done. You take off all your clothes, which is why it was important there were men and women deacons in the early church. You take off all your clothes. You're put in the water. You're washed. And you're given a brand new white robe when you came out. Because you are brand new. You are associating with being something brand new. And on Easter Sunday morning, you present yourselves in this ceremony of how significant and important your new life is. Okay, that's good, John. Okay, I'm with you so far. So by being baptized, I need to remember I'm looking forward to associating myself with Jesus. Okay, that makes sense. 
there's a theological question you need to ask that really pounds this home. Why is Jesus baptized? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Jesus has to be baptized for John the Baptist. Crazy John the Baptist. And I'm, I know I'm getting a smaller place in heaven because I'm making fun of John the Baptist. John the Baptist in his Jordan River, in his scary, homeless, the end is near outfit, has been baptizing people and saying, the kingdom of God is here. Repent, repent, repent. There is one coming. When Jesus is baptized by John, he is saying to everyone there, you know that stuff that crazy man's been saying to you? He's right. And I want to associate, my, associate myself with his message. And his message is the kingdom of God is at hand and someone is coming. Hi, I'm him. That's why Jesus is baptized by John. When you are baptized, you are saying whether you knew it or not, I want to be associated with something new. That's why. It's simply stating in a public setting that you want to be associated with something new. You've abandoned what you did before and you're associating with something new. Now, for many of you, that seems simple enough. For many of you, there are still those embedded ideas just like my friend William in his King James Version Bible. But baptism is simply a declaration that I want to be associated with that. Now, does it seem like a silly kind of thing to do and we put people in water and it doesn't seem to always make sense? Yeah, maybe so. But Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, make disciples and baptize them. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make disciples and baptize them. Whenever we celebrate baptism on Lord's Sunday in Christian tradition, we're supposed to know why we celebrate it, which hopefully I've explained that is, is quickly as I could. That's like a three-hour lecture in Baptist history. Sorry. Um, and we're also supposed to remember when we were baptized because you need a place in time that you know you committed to this. Now, for some of you, you may have been told, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going long. I'll apologize later because this is not in the script and not practiced at all. Some of you were told, hey, you need to have one place in time that you know that you became a Christian and that magically happened. It was wonderful and great. I hate to break the news to you, but many of the great Christian historians, many of the great Christian theologians, some of which who say the word Isaiah a lot, would say to you, that's great, but not everybody has the same experience as you did. And maybe your conversion experience was over time and you cannot connect it to one specific exact date. That's okay. But because you live in a time where you cannot be exact an exact date, you may need a baptism date to know that at least on this day, at this place, and this time, I committed to being associated with Jesus. That's why we as Baptists think that's important. Real quick. Now, for some of you, you've talked with me in the last couple of weeks about this. Some of you, your parents have talked with me about this in the last couple of months. So, just play along. Three things we always say at the end of baptism and Lord's services to make sure everyone's clear. One, baptism is important. Jesus said do it. I don't know about you, 
when Jesus says do stuff, I just try to do it. Or at least, as I butcher the English language, don't get caught avoiding it. Two, maybe, and I tend, I rarely encourage this, but the biblical text puts me in a position where I have to say it. You may find yourself in a position based on how you had your baptism, when you experienced your baptism, what you did with your baptism, things that you may, you may feel that you want to be rebaptized. I tend to almost always discourage that. But the biblical writers would say, John, you can't exclude all of that. Don't you remember John's disciples? And three, you may need to consider what it takes to be baptized, or if you've already been baptized, remember why you did that. And when you face difficulties in life, when you're not sure what to do, when you're John the Baptist and they throw you in prison, and I'm so proud we remember John got his head chopped off. Um, when that happens, you want to have a place that you know you said, I have associated myself with Jesus. And I don't always know what I'm supposed to be doing. Every time. But there are a lot of things because I'm associated with Jesus that I do know I'm supposed to do. Baptism and being reminded of that helps you to do that. Now, if today that means for you coming forward to talk to me, do that. If for you, like as many of you, that means emailing me or texting me or chatting other times about baptism, we can do that. I'm kind of tentatively looking at having a baptismal service sometime in February, just so you're aware. Um, do that. If it means coming to talk to me, do that. But Baptism Lord Sunday traditionally is done so that we remember who we're associated with. And if you don't know, we need to figure that out. For the next five or so weeks, we're going to look at what it means to be Baptist. Baptists are the reason that women get to vote in this country. Baptists are the reason the First Amendment exists. Baptists are the reason that we really have religious freedom, even though my Democratic and Republican friends have screwed it up. We have religious freedom. Our culture would not be the same without four or five Baptists who had no political power, no political anything, who refused to be quiet. I think maybe we've forgotten that. I think I might remind you. And I think I might be a little vocal about it. Sorry about that. Okay. Having said that, I'm going to pray. And we can go from there. Thanks for being here. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for today. Thank you for the fact that you were baptized. So that John could know that what he did mattered. Where you declared to everyone, Hey John, you were telling the truth. Help us as we remember our baptism or look forward to our baptism. Know that we are saying to you, God, that we believe in you and that you came for us. In Jesus' name, amen.